This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Welcome to Sightlines, your guide to the visual arts in and around Dunedin. I'm Sally McMillan, and this show is brought to you on behalf of the Dunedin Public Art Gallery Society. Today, we're celebrating 100 years of the Dunedin Public Art Gallery Society with a look back at how the gallery was founded and how the society evolved. We'll explore the role of some prominent figures in the gallery's history and we'll also hear the voices of concerned citizens through the years airing their robust opinions about all matters artistic in the letters page of the ODT. But first, here's DPAG Society President Ross Curry with the latest on the current Dunedin arts scene. This is Snapshot. Ross, give us the rundown on what's on at the moment. Well, at FE29 Gallery in Sinclair, Philippa Blair has a lively show called Ferro Natura, which runs until September the 19th. Philippa's work is dramatic and exuberant, with pigments applied in multiple ways. The show will include drawings, collages and mixed-media paintings. At the Brick McDowell Gallery, the late Joanna Margaret Paul has work curated by her son Felix Harris. In an Olga gallery in Murray Place, curator Robin Marie Pickens explores aspects of the body in The Body Maker from September the 2nd. A great range of artists have work in this show, including Ed Ritchie, Min Young Her, Paul Johns, Sam DeCarney, Tan Scott and Val Smith. And I believe that we have an exciting event coming up for our members, Ross. That's right, Sally. Last year I attended a major show by sculptor Graham Bennett at the Christchurch Museum. His sculptures range from the intimate to the monumental. I was astounded at the breadth of his output and excited to learn he has a show coming up at the Milford Gallery through September. His show is called The Entanglement of Fact and Value. I'm even more excited he has agreed to do a guided tour of the show for our members on Monday, September the 5th at Milford at 1.30pm. That will be a real treat, Ross. How do members book for that? By emailing us at admin at dpags.org.nz. Or getting in touch, presumably, via the Society's Facebook page. And of course, if there are non-members listening who would like to go, you can just join up. It's really simple and you'd be extremely welcome. So all of that sounds great, Ross. What's on at DPAG itself? Well, right through September and October, DPAG is hosting a range of exciting shows. These include On the Table, a superb selection of artists presented in the Jim and Mary Bar collection. Christopher Ulutupu's film, The Fall, and a stimulating show of abstract work called In, On and Over. And there's much more besides. Thanks, Ross. And now it's time for our feature item. In today's show, we mark the 100th anniversary of the formation of the Dunedin Public Art Gallery Society. In 1922, the trustees of the Dunedin Public Art Gallery and the Otago Art Society came together to form the Dunedin Public Art Gallery Society, and in the same year, it was formally registered with the DCC. But the beginnings go back much further than this. 
In the late 19th century, Dunedin was wealthy from the gold rushes and boasted New Zealand's first university, first medical school and the first school of art. This meant that there were more professional people moving to the city. A group of ambitious, successful, creative and entrepreneurial leaders all created the context that led to the development of New Zealand's oldest art gallery, containing one of the most significant collections in the country. This year, we celebrate the role that the DPAC Society has played in developing the collection and the foresight of those civic-minded leaders. The most prominent of those leaders was William Matthew Hodgkins. He was a key figure in uniting a group of painters under the banner of the Society of Artists, and broadly speaking, it is Hodgkins that the Dunedin Public Art Gallery and Society can regard as founder. Hodgkins was born in Liverpool in 1833, but moved to Dunedin in about 1859, attracted by the prosperity created by the Otago Gold Rush. First working as an ornamental writer, in 1863 he became a law clerk. Two years later, married Rachel Parker, with whom he went on to have six children, including the celebrated painter Francis Hodgkins. While his legal career did not flourish, he continued to be upwardly mobile and to involve himself in what he saw as the need for a burgeoning, prosperous city to have a public art gallery, the likes of which he had left behind in England. In 1865, he took charge of the photographic department for the New Zealand exhibition in Dunedin and in 1869 went on to organise a fine arts exhibition with the specific aim of that evolving into the establishment of an art gallery. Alas, this was not successful in spite of attracting over 5,000 attendees, but it indicated that behind the scenes early on there was an ambition for a permanent gallery. In 1875, Hodgkins founded what soon became the Otago Art Society. In his seminal lecture of 1880, A History of Landscape Art and Its Study in New Zealand, Hodgkins bemoaned the lack of galleries that would help aspiring student artists and argued that the School of Art might have made more progress in producing a cadre of professional painters had there been galleries available for them. He noted that... Each year for the last four years, we have had an exhibition of paintings in oil and watercolours. Of a necessity... The works exhibited are comparatively slight in execution, but already there are signs of improvement, and in a few years we hope to be able to compare favourably with our older neighbours. There is each year, in conjunction with the Art Society, an art union of pictures, not, as some people suppose, promoted for the purpose of selling our own amateur productions, but to afford an outlet for the pictures of many of our New Zealand professional artists, some of which pictures are of a very high order of merit. In the Society's efforts to develop art here and cultivate a taste for it, we look to our fellow citizens for such assistance as will encourage those artists to send us their works with a reasonable certainty that they will find purchasers. And I look forward with confidence to the time when Dunedin will possess its art gallery, upon the walls of which we may see with pride the masterpieces of our colonial painters. Under Hodgkin's presidency, the Society started to collect pictures in 1881, and the following year he persuaded the Society to start a national collection of works of art. A further resolution in October 1884 founded the Dunedin Public Art Gallery, the first in New Zealand. While the gallery went from strength to strength, Hodgkin's own circumstances were less fortunate. By 1888, his career as a lawyer was at an end and he was bankrupt. 
He and his family were forced to leave their grand home in Royal Terrace, which still stands today with its blue plaque commemorating the Hodgkins family connection. They moved to much more modest lodgings in Ravensbourne, then regarded as an out-of-town suburb. However, he did become mayor of West Harbour and his fortunes improved again when he was involved in organising the New Zealand and South Seas exhibition of 1888-89, which he used as a springboard for the proposal that the New Zealand government start a national gallery that would have works in each main centre. That proposal was rejected, but the government honoured Hodgkin's vision by assisting the Dunedin Gallery with more works, a new building and a new society of supporters. Throughout this period, William Matthew Hodgkins was himself a painter, an accomplished landscape artist in the Turneresque manner. He enthusiastically embraced new styles as they emerged in the late 19th century, such as those of van der Velden and Nairn, and he hosted Girolamo Neri when he sojourned in Dunedin in the late 1890s, during which time Dunedin became recognised as the foremost centre of art in New Zealand, a prominence achieved largely as the result of Hodgkins' efforts. Hodgkins died in Dunedin in 1898, leaving a wife and six children in compromised circumstances. In recognition of the cheerful, ambitious, persevering man that he had been, the Dunedin community applied its goodwill to supporting his family. The people of the city recognised the man who had founded its art society and gallery and who had left behind a body of his own works that have subsequently been recognised as some of the best of their kind, some of which are part of the Dunedin Public Art Gallery collection. He also left behind daughters Isabel and most notably Francis, who inherited his artistic talent. Further, he published the first considered statement of any length on New Zealand art, and all his hard work paid off. The first public art collection was housed in the Maritime Hall of the Otago Museum in 1884, effectively the founding of the Dunedin Public Art Gallery. It comprised a handful of paintings by New Zealand artists, along with reproductions of old European masters, all displayed to advantage beside the skeleton of a very large whale. The foundational collection was later housed in the new room in the municipal chambers. It consisted of seven oil paintings, six watercolours and the old masters' reproductions. In the meantime, behind the scenes, fundraising was happening in full force to enable the purchase of new works from the New Zealand and South Seas Exhibition, a kind of world fair held in 1889 and 90 to celebrate the golden jubilee of the proclamation of British sovereignty over New Zealand. The exhibition was held in a vast purpose-built domed pavilion on waterfront land donated by the Otago Harbour Board between Crawford, Cumberland and Jervois Streets. The exhibition featured displays from dozens of countries and it was attended by well over half a million visitors. The Dunedin Public Art Gallery Society proper first emerged after a meeting in 1890 to discuss the purchase of works from the exhibition to form the basis of a national art gallery. One of these purchases, for the eye-watering sum of £300, was Ernest Waterlow's Sunny Hours. It caused much controversy. In May of 1890, one correspondent railed against it in the Otago Daily Times, displaying a keen interest in the principles of composition and perspective and a strong preference for the old masters over newer works. I was glad to see that an amendment was moved and seconded to strike out Mr Smith's motion, the words referring to Mr Waterlow's sunny hours. 
though I am sorry to say it was lost by a large majority. This does not say much for the artistic discrimination of the Dunedin connoisseurs. Sunny hours is crude and essentially commonplace. The girl with the bunch of withered branches is as tall as the house, though she is only a few paces from it. Then the old man stuck in the ground behind her is too small for the girl. All told, there are nine human figures on the canvas, and of these, six are looking at the jackdaw perched on the boy's hand. This, I think, ought to have been the only action in the picture. But there, unfortunately, is the old man in the hole, with no hint for what purpose. Like the fly in amber, one wonders how the devil he got there, or what he is doing. Painters are, of course, like poets, allowed a certain license, but they should use it with moderation. They should certainly not resort to the device of half-burying their figures in order to get them into proportion. I humbly submit that sunny hours is not the kind of picture to form the nucleus of an art gallery. Why, for £300, you could get a copy of the Madonna di San Cisco, and a good copy of that would be worth infinitely more than all the pictures all the artists in the exhibition could produce, even if they were to paint for all eternity. Despite plenty of debate on the quality of its holdings, the fledgling gallery continued to grow, and soon on the move again to what is now Toitu Otago Settlers Museum. It was housed in the large room that currently is filled with stern portraits of prominent settlers. However, the gallery had to share the space with regular balls and meetings of local farmers, and the roof leaked. But Hodgkin's tireless advocacy for public support of art did not go unheard. Even after his death, the society continued to attract significant bequests and gifts, including substantial sums from Thomas Hocken in 1910 and Peter Smeaton in 1919, and these ensured that the gallery survived and continued to grow. In 1927, the gallery moved yet again to a bespoke building at Logan Park. While this was the first purpose-built venue for the gallery, the location was not to everyone's liking. For example, two decades on, in October 1950, a group of commentators, including prominent poet and editor Charles Brash, left no doubt about the limitations of Logan Park. Their incidental concerns about the inadequacies of Dunedin public transport may also sound familiar. It was reported in your columns that the City Council had approved plans for the addition of a new wing at the art gallery at Logan Park. But this site has proved most inaccessible. It can only be reached by an infrequent bus service which stops about a quarter of a mile away. And the time taken in getting there and back means that very few except retired people and owners of motor cars are able to visit unless at weekends. An art gallery is of little value to the community unless its collections can become familiar by constant visits. Ideally, it should be near the centre of things so that both young and old can drop in frequently and get to know the pictures well. A central site in Dunedin may be difficult to find, but it should be possible to find one at least as near the centre as the museum, in a position where people pass it all the time instead of in a remote by-road leading nowhere. 
Well, in 1996, the gallery moved to its current location, the most central site imaginable and one of which Brash would have approved. The collection had long outgrown the storage capacity at Logan Park, so the former DIC department store in Dunedin's Octagon was modified to accommodate the collection, and there the gallery remains to this day. As we've heard, from the earliest days there was controversy over the gallery's purchases and the qualifications of decision-makers on the Gallery Council. The vexed question of what constituted quality art was regularly raised by numbers of self-appointed experts. On entering the gallery, I am always confronted with a gigantic canvas depicting a shipwreck. In style, it is reminiscent of a stage backcloth. It was painted by two artists, one of whom, I suppose, carried the buckets of paint up the ladder while the other slapped it on. Though it is a legacy from the old Otago Art Society days, I am sure the society of today would not weep over its demise. The canvas could provide material for a dozen pictures. I have had to pass by this grim, grey monster since Queen Victoria's days, and I am exceedingly tired of it. The issue of maintaining the right balance between local and European art continued to surface regularly, with some opinions strongly pro-New Zealand art, such as the 1926 letter writer who bemoaned the conventionality of mind and lack of knowledge, suggested in the choice of works purchased by the society. The gentleman responsible for the enhancing of our local gallery by a number of fresh examples of dull and uninspired art in which the Council of the Dunedin Art Gallery Society has traditionally delighted, cannot really expect us to be grateful. On the other side of the argument, there was severe criticism from Harry Toombs, writing in Art in New Zealand in 1941, of the DPAG Society's decision to stop paying its subscription to the Empire Art Loan Collection Society. This was later revealed to be a pragmatic response to wartime exigencies, and the DPAG Society assured Toombs of its continued determination to host travelling exhibitions sent from the motherland. There was also ongoing complaint about a dearth of artists in the society's government. In May 1946, a concerned citizen wrote to the ODT under the pseudonym of Fair Play, noting an alarming imbalance on the society council. Sir, a study of the personnel of the Council of the Local Art Gallery reveals the fact that there are four local doctors and no artists represented. I suggest that when the next medical board is set up, it should comprise four artists and no doctors. I doubt if the results would be any more damaging to the community. These conflicts played out sharply in the often difficult relationship between the Otago Art Society and the DPAG Council. The two groups tried to make common cause, even to the extent of amalgamating in 1922 to form the Dunedin Public Art Gallery Society. In May 1922, the Otago Tally Times tried to be optimistic about the move. It is to be trusted that the wisdom of the amalgamation of the Otago Art Society with the Dunedin Public Art Gallery will be proved by the effects. As the step has been carefully considered by those particularly responsible for the control of the two bodies, and as no protest against it has been raised, it may be taken for granted that it is believed to be in the interests of art in Dunedin. But there was a forewarning of the differences between the two groups. 
a note of regret at the disappearance of the venerable Otago Art Society founded by Hodgkins, and a fear that it was effectively subsumed in the new body. There were also continued simmering resentments by practising New Zealand artists against the conservative, Eurocentric tastes of the society luminaries. By 1930, it was clear that the arrangement had not worked, with the ODT admitting that the amalgamation has not proved altogether a success. There was no real compatibility of purpose between a body chiefly interested in the maintenance of an art gallery and a body chiefly concerned about the encouragement of local artists and the advancement of their interests. For financial reasons, the DPAG Society could not afford to sustain the annual exhibition of local work. The Society itself realised that maintaining an art gallery and supporting and advancing the interests of local artists was unmanageable. The Otago Art Society was revived and reformed as a separate entity. The divorce was absolute, and from that day both the Art Society and the DPAG Society remained true to their original purposes. Relations are decidedly more cordial today, however, with a good exchange of ideas between the two groups and a strong sense of shared interest. Through the second half of the 20th century, the Society focused on managing and growing the gallery. Though a commissioned report by Esmond de Beer in 1963 noted continuing concerns about the poor representation of New Zealand art in the collection, the gallery worked hard to attract support and increase public appreciation of art. An extension committee active in 1979 used advertising, performances and travelling exhibitions to promote the gallery to a wider audience. Attendance rose from 15,000 in 1979 to 30,000 in 1980 and 40,000 the year after that. Its holdings also grew. The Thierman Gallery, also known as Olverston, was gifted to the city in 1967 and was administered by the DPAG Society. In the same year, the Society received the generous Northcroft bequest, which became its single most significant source of funding. Given that from very early on the gallery had an annual allocation of DCC funds from the ratepayers, the city felt the need to question how this money was spent and who was making the decisions. However, the society continued to manage the gallery until as late as 1989, when the society finally deeded gallery management to the DCC, thus effecting a total amalgamation of the gallery with the city council. Today, the gallery is a thriving hub for local visitors and tourists alike, benefiting from its prime position in the city centre. The gallery also runs a highly successful education programme, ensuring that generations of Dunedin children have come to know and love the collection, just as Charles Brash had hoped. The society no longer administers the gallery, which is now run by staff directly appointed by the DCC. But as regular listeners will know, the Society runs a lively series of talks, site visits and gallery tours, as well as administering close to a million dollars worth of gifts and bequests, which enable the Society to contribute at least one significant new acquisition every year to the gallery's collection. In recent decades, the Society has acquired work by New Zealand artists more often than not, including significant pieces by Francis Hodgkins, Ralph Hotere, Shane Cotton, Robin White and many others. In terms of the wider goals that Hodgkins and others set in the late 19th century, we can take comfort that even during these turbulent and uncertain times, New Zealanders still respect the vital place of the arts in society. 
research undertaken by Creative New Zealand every three years since 2005 shows increasing support for the idea that art enriches life. In the 2020 survey, more New Zealanders than ever before were positive about the role of the arts and felt that the arts were making a powerful contribution to well-being in the midst of the COVID pandemic. Locally, the Dunedin Public Art Gallery has a secure and valued place at the centre of Dunedin's thriving cultural life and the Society is proud to continue supporting the gallery as it has done for the last 100 years. We'd like to acknowledge here the research undertaken into the Society's history by Charlotte Murray as well as Peter Entwistle's volume on William Matthew Hodgkins and the DPAG's own survey of its collection, Beloved. Extracts from contemporary letters to the editor are courtesy of papers past. And thanks to you, our listeners. Join us again next month when we'll be talking to the current Francis Hodgkins Fellow, multimedia artist Surawit Songsatea. If you'd like to hear today's show again or listen to previous shows, you can find us on the Otago Access Radio and DPAG Society websites. Thanks to contributors Ross Curry, Fraser The Voice Goldsmith, and producer Jonathan Quayorf. I'm Sally McMillan, and you've been listening to Sightlines. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.